Not So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. It's still going to be another few weeks until we're back to regularly scheduled episodes, but for this week, to tide you over, we have another special one for you. In this episode, HAF Director of Public Policy Tanyel Kushakshin speaks with Abhinav Pandya of the Usinus Foundation. Tanyel and Abhinav go in-depth into the geopolitics of the Kashmir conflict, the increasing role of Turkey in that conflict, and China's ambitions and attempt to influence the region. Hello, and thank you for joining That's So Hindu, a podcast of the Hindu American Foundation. My name is Tanyal Kushakchin, and I am the Director of Public Policy for the Hindu American Foundation based in Washington, D.C., and I will be your host for this week's episode with Mr. Abhinav Pandya. Mr. Pandya is the founder and CEO of Usanas Foundation, a geopolitical and security affairs think tank based in Rajasthan, India. He is the author of Radicalization in India, an Exploration by Pentagon Press 2019. Currently, he is working on his second book entitled Terror Financing in Jammu and Kashmir. Mr. Pandya earned his bachelor's degree from St. Stephen's College in Delhi and a master's in public affairs from Cornell University in New York, United States. Thank you, Abhinav, for joining me on our podcast today. Thanks, Daniel. And in fact, I would really like to thank you for giving me this opportunity to speak for Hindu American Foundation. You know, and I've always heard about you and your amazing work in DC. Uh, even while I was at Cornell, I often used to hear about it. So, I mean, my thanks to you. And yes, you know, I mean, I'm glad to be here. That's wonderful, and I'm glad that HAF's uh, name and 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 brand uh, is is reaches uh, across the world, and uh, it's really great to have you. I'm really looking forward to our discussion here today. Uh, talk to me a little bit about your first book, uh, Radicalization in India: An Exploration, and how did you come to write that? And give us a little bit more background about uh, that particular project. Perfect. I think you're getting me into tough waters, you know. So the, my, my book, as it's, its title itself, is Radicalization in India and Exploration. So, so I came back to India in the year 2016. So before that, I was in I was in DC. I was in New York City. 2016, I came back and I was working in my hometown, Udaipur, in Rajasthan. Here, I was working as an educational advisor with an NGO. So I was put in touch with one of my father's senior who was in the police services and former special secretary to the government of India, in touch with the people at Vivekananda International Foundation. It's a premier security think tank of India, which was started by our national security advisor, Mr. Ajit Doval. So you have a lot of folks from the former intelligence people, former diplomats and civil servants working there. I was put in touch with the people over there and then I started writing on security issues. But still the environment in the academia and in the public policy discourse in India was so, I would say, you know, uncomfortable with the idea of working on things like radicalization that no one ever you know, touched these areas. This was something which was called as if you know, there's no definition to it and most of the universities and most of the campuses in India were dominated by a very strongly leftist and liberal ideology which was I would say you know, very 
appeasing towards the radical Islamist groups. So they would not, uh, I mean, it was very politically motivated uh, area. So they would not touch upon this subject. But uh, this is, and this uh, is something that was just in that location or spread throughout India? Spread throughout, throughout India, you know, because uh, uh, over the last 70 years, the way academia and the way uh, political setup has grown in India, you know, it was in a very, you know, I would say leftist liberal discourse you know so that i mean i i don't have a problem with that but ultimately it ended up uh, suffocating the growth of uh, other schools of thought or the you know i would say the idea of dissent but since i was already having a background in states where i had seen you know i had an interaction with the various international actors and i had seen the phenomenon of islamist radicalization jihadism and its terror so i thought that you know india is a country which is facing this threat for last 30 years or even before that like so the west actually came across this threat much later you know? especially after 9-11 the western countries started you know deliberating seriously upon it but we were facing this threat you know uh, like i would say in a very military form since 1989 when the uh, jammu kashmir separatist islamist militancy started but even before that when india was partitioned in 1947 the reason was this jihadist radicalizing forces so I thought that this is the area to work on. So I started, this project was sanctioned by VIF and uh, there were two case studies in that sub-project. One was Kerala and the other was Kashmir. Now, the, interestingly, Kerala is an area, it's a state in India where Islam came very first in India, you know, and it came via sea routes, via trade routes. It's a very prosperous society. People are very rich, and you have a large population working in the Middle East. But and this was a form of, of Sunni, uh, I'm sorry, Sufi uh, yes. Islam at the time, right? It wasn't the, the more radicalized Wahhabism that, yes. we, that we experience yes. and, and see more of today. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Initially, when the Islam came, like it was so earliest, it came through the Arab traders in 7th, 8th century AD. So it was, I would say, a very puritanical form of Islam but not a very radical. I think in those times, the milieu was different. Even the Indian kings in Kerala, like the king of Calicut, king of Zamorin, they were very receptive towards these you know, foreign religious and cultural ideologies. I, th I guess the culture of India was such that it was very receptive towards the foreign ideology. It was so liberal that the local king allowed one member of a family, of, an, of each and every family to convert to Islam. Oh, so that the, the the faith could flourish and he allowed you know, the people and the clerics to build mosques and various places of worship for the Islamic people. Uh, so it flourished and grew over there. Okay. But uh, yes, uh, coming to the present times, you know, now, uh, the fact that Kerala is a very rich state, education levels are very high, the socio-economic indicators are very high as compared to the other states of India. But the maximum number of people who joined ISIS from India came from Kerala. Now, how and is that? that? How, well, and why do you think that is? Uh, so that, that also includes a decent number of people who converted to Islam from Christianity or Hinduism, and then, you know, uh, they joined ISIS. This is because of the advent of Wahhabi extremist, extremist version of Islam in Kerala. And it came because of, because most of the people in Kerala, they were working in Gulf countries as workers. So they were the first people to come in contact with the fundamentalist and extremist versions of Wahhabi thought over there. And they brought the same idea back in Kerala. So they About what time was that? About what time was uh, that? I, in the last 20 years, I would say. In the okay. last 20, 25 years. You know, okay. And uh, with that also came a lot, huge Gulf money also came. And... Uh, 
in Kerala. So, I mean, you can actually feel if you go there, you know, uh, the people, they started abandoning their local Hindu traditions or the Indian traditions, I would say. And even they would dress up like Arab sheikhs. They would start, the colonies would be named in Arabic. The areas and districts would be named in Arabic. During Ramadan times, you cannot open any shop in Mamallapuram, which is a Muslim-rich uh, area, muslim uh, majority area, yes, mm. so majority area. So uh, it, it was that kind of, you know, I would say, uh, influence from that. Besides that, PFI, Popular Front of India, one of a very extremist, radical organization, believe in political Islam, became very strong and active in Kerala. So these were the reasons which motivated me to study Kerala. And then the second case study was Kashmir. Was in Kashmir, uh, India faced a very very unique kind of insurgency in 1947. When India and Pakistan, the, they separated, uh, and the entire country was going through very brutal and bloody communal rights. But in Kashmir, there were no communal rights. In fact, Mahatma Gandhi said that in Kashmir, I see a ray of hope. Because in Kashmir, in those times, Sufi Islam was present there. In fact, I shouldn't even call it Sufi Islam. I should call it more of Kashmiriyat, which was a good amalgamation of Hindu, Buddhist, and Islamic traditions and also Christian traditions because there are a lot of stories behind that also. Oh, so well, how, can you say that word again? What, 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 how do you identify it? Uh, I would say Kashmiriyat. 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 Okay. Kashmiriyat. That's interesting. And, how, and, yes. and, and, and describe that a little bit for us, for our listeners. So and Kashmiriyat, Kashmiriyat is a very unique, uh, you know, I would say cultural setup, in, uh, especially uh, mostly confined to Jammu, the state of Jammu and Kashmir. And it's an amalgamation of uh, Islamic values, Buddhist uh, traditions and Hindu traditions, and also to an extent, uh, the great Christian traditions. You know? Well, the last part is a little more controversial, so I'm not getting into it, but there are a lot of stories behind it. Okay? But in essence, Kashmiriyat implies uh, basically the spiritual growth of a person and not confining or restricting yourself to mostly ritualistic aspects of religion. It, it imbibes the values of tolerance, respect for others, peace, and spiritual growth. And also the intellectual, I would say, you know, prosperity. So that was Kashmir. And in 1947, the elected, uh, you know, I would say, popular leader of Kashmir, Sheikh Muhammad Abdullah, he chose India over Pakistan because he was not happy with the uh, idea of you know, Islamic Republic of Pakistan. Okay? And then the king of Kashmir, Maharaja of Kashmir, he also chose India. And interestingly, he was a bit reluctant. Okay? So now, I mean, there was Kashmir in 1947. In 1965, people supported India in the war with Pakistan. 1972, also people supported India. But after that, in the span of 20 to 30 years, you know, Kashmir was completely changed. In 1989, you could see masses, like you know, a large number of people from Kashmir moving to Pakistan, crossing borders and getting trained in, I would say, this Ghazi or jihadist insurgency and coming back as terrorists. So during that phase, Kashmir had undergone intense Islamist radicalization through the activities of Jamaat-e-Islami, which is a South Asian cousin of Muslim Brotherhood. It believes in the Madhudi ideology of political Islam, which says that the society and each and every aspect of society should be ruled according to the laws of Sharia. And the non-Muslims, they enjoy the status of dhimmi only. That means they have to pay taxes to live in the Muslim state, and uh, they are kind of, I would say, third grade or a second grade citizens, you know, not considered equal to the Muslim citizen. Okay, so they face many restrictions. And that's, that's the type of, of theocracy that exists in Pakistan yes. today. I mean, that's the that, that's the model, right? 
Yes, yes, very true. So all the minorities, they're targeted, they're targeted, accused of blasphemy, they are killed. And, you know, you have targeted killings of people from various minority communities. Even among the Muslims, uh, they believe in the doctrine of takfiri, which says that if you don't subscribe to their idea of Islam, then you are not a true Muslim. Okay? Then also you are wajibul katul, that means you ought to be killed. So that kind of radicalization was taking place. So this was jamaat e islami phase from 90 to 2000. 2000 onwards, a next stage of radicalization started creeping into Kashmir and that was the Bahabi radicalization, which was majorly financed and sponsored by the forces that came from the Arab world, from the Saudi Arabian world. Okay. Certainly Pakistan was hands in glove with them and the new terrorist organizations like Lashkar-e Taiba, they believed in the idea of uh, this Wahhabi ideology, which is also known as Ali Hadith in Kashmir or Salafi in Kashmir. Okay? And uh, I mean, well, I don't, I'm not implying that each and every person believing in this idea or each and every person who calls himself a Salafi is an extremist or is a terrorist. Not that. But yes, the, uh, the ideology, this ideology believes in the political Islam. They believe that the society must be governed and ruled according to the concepts of Sharia. So ideology itself is a big threat. And the people who were following it, even without wanting, or even if they were not willing to subscribe to it completely, they gradually came under the influence of its extremist aspects and uh, their attitude towards the minority communities changed. So now over the last 10, 15 years, uh, 10 years, especially after the Arab Spring, you could see that in Kashmir, uh, this Wahhabi doctrine is very strong. People talk of caliphate. Uh, the new age militants like Burhan Wani, he's a, he was a celebrity militant. Another celebrity militant, Zakir Musa, they openly talked of building a caliphate in Kashmir or, you know, I mean, some of them, even you have a local affiliate of ISIS in Kashmir. You also have a local affiliate of Al-Qaeda in Kashmir, which is known as Ansar Ghazwatul Hind. Most recently, Zawahiri gave a, state, a message to Kashmiris that they should now fight for an Islamic Kashmir. And you know, this whole idea of political freedom doesn't make sense. Islamic Kashmir is more dominant. So these are the reasons why I chose this project and uh, luckily I came out. I mean, I was, it was a very tough project because it was very challenging due to the uh, excruciating security conditions in Kashmir. But finally, I could uh, finish the project and all my thanks goes to like many people in Kashmir who helped me in the project. And I guess the book is out in the market and it gives a very unique and a nuanced insight into what's happening there. I mean, this is my perception. I should be wrong, but I just wrote what I saw. Sure. No, that, that that's fascinating. So two points there. Um, you know, you mentioned there are two case studies that, um, that, that make the, uh, the basis of uh, the foundation of, of your first book. Um, how much time did you spend in, in Kerala and how much time did you spend uh, in, in Kashmir? Uh, did you spend time in Jammu as well? Um, did you happen to go to Ladakh at all or was that not included um, in, in this yeah. book? Uh, so uh, Kerala, I didn't go because uh, there were budget constraints. So the field trip was not allowed to Kerala. So for Kerala, I interviewed many people uh, who were basically based in Kerala. That included eminent local journalists who were expert in security affairs in Kerala, local clerics, police officers, normal residents, scholars and common people in Kerala. But uh, Kashmir, yes, my field trip was sanctioned, so I went to Kashmir and uh, uh, my total stay was about, I guess, three years, you know, uh, that included even after writing the book, you know, because I got another assignment, you know, or in fact, four years. Okay. I so you were in, you were in Kashmir from about, about 2000 and late 2015, yeah, 2016 until late last year? I must say 2017 uh, until now, like I'm still continuing the Kashmir assignment. That's, okay. 
Fascinating. I'm here because of the Corona, but I'm still continuing with it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Well, that's, that was going to lead me to, to, uh, uh, well, actually real quick. Um, I wanted to, to touch on something that you mentioned on, on your first book and in, in the very beginning of, of our conversation, which was the, uh, the other side of radicalization. And we talked about religious radicalization, uh, the radicalization of, of, of the society, the different, uh, types of, of, of that religious sect, uh, of Islam that, that came about, but you originally talked about radicalization of, uh, or applied that term, I should say to academia and society, uh, at large in, in India and, and something that you said was quite widespread uh, for about uh, 50 to 70 years. And so I'd like you to talk a little bit about that and take our listeners through that, what you identify as, as, as a radicalization in, uh, in academia uh, in India and how that had an, a, a, a profound effect. Uh, I would maybe venture adverse effect on Indian society and, and perhaps that permeated into, into domestic and foreign policy. Perfect, perfect. Uh, so I think I'll again go back to the year 1947, you know, or in fact, even before that, so after the, so over the last, I would say the seven to 800 years, India was uh, ruled by different uh, you know, uh, Islamic uh, kings, you know, mostly, and some, most of them came as invaders. So there was an acute struggle going on between the people, the local kings and the Muslim kings. And uh, uh, it also, the struggle also had a very strong religious uh, tone and tenor actually. Okay. And I mean, no doubt there were phases of cooperation, cultural intermingling, but uh, uh, there were, especially during the Islamic rule, people were possibly converted and temples were destroyed. Okay? So there was a reason, I mean, you could find, you can still find this very bitter, you know, I would say uh, tinge of rivalry, uh, even at a very social and society and community level among the Hindus and Muslim communities in India. Most of the people would certainly say that India is a very secular country and they would talk about Gandhian ideals and all you know. But here I have a slightly different take, you know, and let me be very honest. Okay? In India, you see, I mean, well, you don't have any issues like Hindu Christian problems or Hindu Jain problems, Hindu Sikh problems. Occasionally, yes, but between the Hindus and Muslims, you have major communal frictions, you know, and I'm not just making a hollow claim. You can just count the number of communal riots which have taken place in India over the last 50, 70 years after the independence and even before that. Uh, so, uh, even after the uh, independence of India, okay, we, we had a very bitter, bloody partition with Pakistan. So, uh, most of the rulers in India, the Congress party especially, they thought that India has to be built into a secular India, which is perfectly fine. But in building that, they kind of you know went towards the, uh, the idea of secularism was translated into idea of appeasing towards you know Islamism, okay, or appeasing towards the Islamic extremism. So, in course of time, I mean, they just went on tolerating all kind of extremist forces or madrasa education, which was totally retrograde and which believed in that same Sharia law. They also went on like sanctifying very primitive practices like halala practice or triple talaq practice in, among the Muslim community. And in the academia, any issue of raising questions on these issues, like you know, questioning Islamic fundamentalism was considered as a sign of bigotry. Here, I must blame the academicians, most of the professors and all the people who were in the big universities and colleges of India, okay? I feel that they were intellectually not honest. Even when it comes to this case of Babri Mosque and the, this Ram Temple, now it is officially on record and it is proven by K.K. Muhammad 
He's the historian from Kerala. He says that eminent historians like Romila Thapar, Irfan Habib, these are the people who are the legendary pioneers of history in India. They lied and, you know, they completely lied on the presence of temple below the remains of Babri Mosque. You know? And even the findings of the archaeological survey were manipul manipulated. And so there was no clarity. What I want to say here is that over the years, because the government system and the academia remained silent, so uh, the Muslim society here, they went on like more and more towards extremism, radicalization. Okay? And these foreign ideological influences like Wahhabism or even the Deobandi extremism, it became very strong and it started penetrating uh, the society. So it kind of alienated the Muslim community from its local oriental roots. And the academia in the universities and colleges, they remained very discriminatory towards people who wanted to raise these issues. In fact, you would be surprised, eminent historians like Sitaram Goyal, historians like R.C. Majumdar, they were, I mean, their findings and their research findings, everything, it was completely shunted out of academia very slowly and slowly. In premier institutions in India, okay, it's very difficult to start a research project on a subject like radicalization. For instance, even in a place like JNU, which is a very paramount institution of India, I have many friends have told me that if you want to do a research on a subject like this, okay, you will face immense challenges. That's that. That's fascinating to to hear, and I think you you're starting to see some of that uh, being exported to the United States, uh, and you can make that case uh, very much so, especially within the field of South Asian studies here in the United States. Um, and one of those other things that I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, and I'd, I'd like to ask you your opinion is the the exportation of um, you know, South Asian communism uh, or the what you call um, leftist forces uh, for those uh, who emigrated to the West. Uh, my experience is they've brought those uh, leftist forces or the uh, the communist uh, uh, ideals uh, with them and instilled them in in their children who are now second generation South Asians uh, in the United States, South Asian Americans. Absolutely right. No? So most of the people like who got that elitist education, uh, which could actually transport them to U.S., you know, they were trained in this liberal, you know, uh, I would say leftist school of thought, you know, be it JNU or be it other institutions of India, because it was the dominant narrative of the state also. You know. For example, I'll just give you one, one example, okay? So we have this famous temple of Somnath in India. Somnath, you can call it like Vatican of India or, you know, Makkah and Medina, something like that, okay? The famous temple of Somnath was plundered and ravaged and destroyed by Sultan Mahmud Ghori of Afghanistan. And it was a religious war, you know. And he called himself as Bhutshikan, the destroyer of temples and idols. It was destroyed because of that, which left a deep you know, wound and a deep imprint in the mindset of Gujarati people, the community people in Gujarat. When India got independence in 1947, the then president of India, Mr. Rajendra Prasad, Dr. Rajendra Prasad, he was in the favor of rebuilding the Somnath temple. Finally, the project was launched and uh, K.M. Munshi, the, the then chief minister of Gujarat, he was also a great, uh, I would say, philosopher and thinker. He also supported and helped the idea of rebuilding this temple. But the prime minister of India, Mr. Jawaharlal Nehru, he stayed away from this project. He said that this is completely fanatic. This is, I mean, he found that it was uh, not a secular idea. It was something kind of a, a religious fanaticism. 
and now just see the hypocrisy on the other on the other hand the state says that indian secularism means equal respect to all the religions okay and in india like even the supreme court has said that hinduism is not a sect it's not a religion it's a way of life which runs through the and the socio and you know the cultural the psychological fabric of this country be it any community be it christians be it muslims be it jews be it hindu it's this whole you know the the hinduism as a philosophy or as a, you know a, a way of thinking it runs through all of them but then our state was not i mean i would say our state was very reactionary and very critical towards it so most of the people born and brought up in that education system they went to us and uh, uh, they were totally disconnected from the indian uh, i would say indian education system no in fact i must say that this you have raised a very important debate on this whole education system whatever we are studying in india that is a very distorted model of the british education system okay the original british education system is still better we imported something which is totally distorted version of it and we worsened it you know in terms of quality now this generation which migrated to america it has no connect with the indian philosophical text like you just speak to them and ask them what is ashtavakra gita ashtavakra gita is a deep deep philosophical and metaphysical text which i am 100% sure many people in the american universities and western campuses must be researching very hard on but here you will come across this new generation they don't know anything about it. even the ancient text like mahabharata you have you know the speed of light is mentioned in there the exact distances of the planetary distances and the structure of the whole cosmos universe is mentioned in them i'm not justifying or you know i would say sanctioning any kind of i would be going back into history but what i want to say is that you know, there was a certain treasure or storehouse of knowledge in india we had a system which was abandoned or which was simply suppressed by these leftist liberals in the education system and that created a generation which doesn't know its history which doesn't know its identity and this generation goes to us and they picture an india like you know which is not exactly the true face of india for true. example i'll just give one example okay like uh, normally there is this tendency to compare hindu nationalist organization with fascist forces now frankly speaking well i have never been part of any political entity okay? and uh, i have spent a good deal of time in us okay i am not and i am also not a very orthodox or a traditional hindu i mean i eat meat and i do everything okay i have had like a very western and a liberal lifestyle but I, when i see these hindu nationalist organizations through an objective lens in india i feel that these comparisons with fascist organizations or the old nazi fascist organizations they are completely outlandish so because in the western world you know when they came up you know this whole idea of you know majority community you know completely killing or like you know uh, crushing the, this even the basic existence of the people okay with that fascist ideology here it doesn't apply at all for the last 800 to 900 years you know muslims have been rulers in india even now they have been very dominant in the society in various areas okay and among the hindus if you see there is no concept of majority community you have hundreds and hundreds of castes okay? so such such notions of you know making outright comparisons with you know these i would say you know making hindu nationalist equivalent to the fascist or nazi doctrines they are outlandish they are totally devoid of any properly nuanced research and study and sure. this happens because this generation like you know it has no connect with the like you know, how, how to say or there is this lack of objectivity in the research
And that the note that I'm glad you touched on on those points, uh, Abhinav, and 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 I just want to make clear to our listeners, you know, uh, having a, a leftist or a liberal uh, school of thought, um, there's nothing wrong with that. It's when you cross into the um, the, the communism uh, aspect and to the um, extreme aspects uh, of, of of a political ideology or even a religious political ideology is that that's when it becomes dangerous um, and can have adverse effects uh, on on society. Um, at the individual at the collective level. Um, so thank you, uh, Abhinav, for, for uh, shedding some light on, on, on your research there and, and, the, and well, what you've been able to witness on the ground, because I think you're absolutely right. What you see um, here in the West, if you just read the headlines of some of the major uh, newspapers, you would think that India is on fire. Uh, and that it's uh, that it's uh, hell incarnate when when things couldn't be further uh, from the truth, especially when it comes to minorities. When you see uh, the the Muslim population in in India continue to rise, um, yet there are people, uh, especially in the United States, who say that uh, there's a genocide happening in India against Muslims when the population continues to increase. Um, and when you have a, a secular state like India that uh, even pays for the Hajj for, for Muslims to go on their, yeah. on their spiritual trip, um, I don't know any other country that, that will do that uh, for for uh, it's uh, for for what is considered a, a minority religion uh, uh, class uh, or, or minority religious populace, uh, uh, such as uh, such as one there is in India. Uh, but I want to move now um, to to yeah, fast forward uh, just, to today. Can I can I add something? Just sure, just please. Small part. Okay. So you know, especially when even I have come across this whole idea of genocide thing. Okay. So you know, just very simple questions to the people who are making such statements. Okay. You know. I mean, if they're accusing of genocide, okay, I mean, my request, humble request to them is that they should at least furnish the number of cases where Muslims are being killed. Number of cases, like, you know, where either with the state support or or even by the Hindu nationalist organizations, okay? First question. Secondly, the recent cases of Delhi riots, okay, the chart sheet has been filed and it has been proved beyond doubt that PFI, Popular Front of India, which is an extremist political Islamist organization, the, they orchestrated the riots. Money came from the various foreign powers like Pakistan's ISI. Turkey was involved in fanning these riots. WhatsApp mes- messages were circulating, were being circulated to incite the Muslim mobs and the commun- into communal frenzy. I can give you an example. And that was while President Trump was there, I believe, yeah. correct? Yes, yes, yes. That, that sounds like it sounds like it, it could be orchestrated when, when you have yeah. the, the, the leader of the free world coming to coming to your your country. Yeah, yeah. It was all premeditated. Now let me tell you, you know, this whole thing that uh, this whole idea of uh, this uh, citizenship amendment act, well, it has nothing to do with the people with the Muslims who are the citizens of India. Now, if India says that, you know, well, I mean, you know, we are not welcoming the Muslim citizens uh, from the uh, neighboring countries, okay, okay. Then, well, first of all, India is a poor country. India is not like Germany or Spain or France, okay. So we already have a resource crunch, resource problem. Okay? So, and this burgeoning population, it's difficult to accommodate. Secondly, if people are migrating from Bangladesh only to seek good economic opportunities, and you have Hindu community, you have Christian community, you have Sikhs community, you have Jews being massacred and killed in Pakistan and the other neighboring states, isn't it India's duty to welcome them, to give them a shelter? Absolutely. And I think that that, that also illustrates the fact that um, if, if India really is on fire, then why does everyone want to come to India when they're fleeing countries yes. that truly are on fire, like uh, Pakistan, 
to 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 some degree Afghanistan as well. Uh, and and in the case of Hindus in Bangladesh, uh, you, you see uh, all of these minority groups from from these countries coming to India um, and even Afghanistan uh, in particular, you know, that's an issue that um, the Hindu American Foundation has been working uh, very closely on uh, is the uh, providing assistance to yes. uh, Hindus and uh, Sikhs uh, from Afghanistan uh, who have very uh, long historic uh, ties. They share religious uh, space and, and, and the same neighborhoods in, in Kabul. And yes. uh, there was the terrorist attack in 2018 that targeted uh, a Sikh and uh, Hindu convoy on their way to meet the Afghan president, uh, Ashraf Ghani. Yes. And most recently, in March uh, 25th of 2020, the most recent attack uh, by ISIS Khorasan on the uh, Gudwara in Kabul, uh, which is one of those joint Hindu-Sikh compounds uh, in yes. Kabul. And uh, now you see what's most likely going to be the uh, final exodus of uh, Hindus and Sikhs from Afghanistan who are now repatriating to, of all places, Delhi, to India, because they have two places yeah. that they can go from Afghanistan as persecuted religious minorities, and that's Islamabad and Delhi, and they all choose Delhi. Why is that? <laughs> I think the, 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 well, the facts are clear. <laughs> yes. Just two more examples, you know. So, you know, see, if you go to Mumbai, the richest community in Mumbai controlling the entire Mumbai economy and market is the Bohra Muslim community. You go to Hyderabad, Muslim community is, you know, controlling the, like having major stakes in the economy. You go to Kerala, they're controlling economy like anything. Even in the world of crime, if you go to UP or come to my state, Rajasthan, some of the biggest gangsters, like, you know, who are literally ruling their territory like feudal lords, they come from the Muslim community. If Muslims are so oppressed in India, okay, you know, I mean, then I have a very simple question. How is all this possible? Yeah. Most very. recently, Kamlesh Tiwari, a leader of the Hindu nationalist organization, uh, it's called Vishwind, uh, there was a, a Hindu Mahasabha. He criticized Prophet Muhammad. Okay? And finally, some Muslim cleric gave a fatwa against him and three Muslim people, they came from Gujarat to his home in Banaras in UP and killed him, which is a state ruled by the BJP, the Hindu nationalist party and India ruled by the Hindu Nationalist Party. And after that, there was no communal right. There was no right in which, you know, the Hindus went and killed Muslims. So well, that's not the first uh, BJP uh, person to be to be targeted and killed. You know, we had that incident uh, in Kashmir about uh, about six weeks ago, yes. where the the, yeah. the father and son, Muslim members of of the BJP, who wanted to help uh, end the corruption in Jammu and Kashmir, who who stepped up to take part in their community and to lead uh, the the not only the community but the the party and society towards new development, new jobs, uh, and. They they were gunned down because they were Muslim yes. and they joined uh, Prime Minister Modi's party. And yes. I think you can see exactly what, uh, what, what the motive and intention here is of those theocratic religious extremist Islamist forces uh, who, uh, even if you're Muslim, if you want to do good, yeah. they, are, they, will, they will take you out. Um, and that that is the the, the clash uh, that is unfolding uh, in Jammu and Kashmir and in other parts of, of the world, quite frankly. Uh, so I want to bring this now full full 360. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about India's periphery today. 
um, the uh, impact of, of COVID-19 and, and some of the most recent uh, events of 2020. Uh, if you could talk a little bit, because uh, I know this is something that, that you work on and your foundation focuses on, yeah. is uh, you know, what's going on on India's periphery today? Okay. Well, India, so I'll just uh, take it one by one, you know, and uh, so basically uh, this India's periphery in, in the Indian mythology or this, you know, in this uh, you know, the oriental text, this whole area was known as Aryavart. Okay? And the Chandragupta Maurya, who was the king, uh, Mauryan king, and his capital was in uh, Magadh, it was, it was in Patriputra in Bihar, present Bihar. His empire extended until, I would say, the mid-Iran. You know? And so Afghanistan was under his territory, Pakistan was under his territory, and uh, down, down south, you know, they had very strong ties with Sri Lanka towards the, in, in, in the east, the present Bangladesh was a part of it. Okay? So, we... Coming to down south Sri Lanka, I think, you know, India has like good relations with Sri Lanka. Recently, the, the new government which has come up in Sri Lanka, it is very India-friendly government. Okay? And even they are also facing the same problem of uh, Islamic fascism uh, in their country. And uh, you, one can, you can witness that the Buddhist, you know, I would say the groups and Buddhist uh, political and social group, groupings have become very adamant and they have come up in defense and you, know, you can feel those communal frictions. Uh, there was a major attack on Easter, on Easter a Sunday attack in which many people died. It was by ISIS. But yes, in Sri Lanka, again, like India is facing a competition from China. China has uh, uh, more or less occupied that port of Hambantota and uh, creeping very slowly and slowly into the economy. Uh, but still, I would say uh, the civilizational ties uh, and the cultural ties remain stronger with India. Uh, coming towards uh, our Western neighbor, Pakistan, you know, it goes more and more and more into uh, craziness and more and more into economic shambles. You know, uh, it's becoming a cesspool of religious extremism, uh, hatred, blasphemy. Uh, God knows uh, what what else we are more, what more we are to see in Pakistan. Okay, it, it's facing tremendous uh, internal problems, and uh, this extremism is on the rise. Minorities are facing a bad problem in Pakistan. Christian Shias, Ahmadiyas, Hindus—they are facing worse and the most difficult challenges. Okay. And the whole country is like is almost become a colony of China. Uh, China has come up with this whole major CPEC project, China Park Economic Corridor, and the country is literally uh, like you know it has sold its entire economy and political, I would say, you know, strength to China. And now even I, I, most uh, most recent I've heard that even the girls from Gilgit, Baltistan, are being smuggled to China, like very bad cases of human trafficking, okay? and. Uh, uh, besides this, so I, I mean, about Pakistan, I must say that, you know, the, the ties between India and Pakistan, they are more and more like deteriorating, becoming more stiff and tougher because this government has made it clear that they are not going to put up with Pakistan's uh, uh, support to terrorism in Kashmir. And they will fight it tooth and nail. Unlike the previous governments, which were quite, uh, I would say, you know, they, they didn't have a Pakistan policy. They were sometimes accommodating, sometimes giving some formal or perfunctory replies or counterattacks to them. But this government has made it explicitly clear that talks and terror cannot go together. And when India responded with surgical strike, with Balakot strike, so Pakistan is now fearing that India might just go and invade uh, POK. And things are ripening very fast because even in POK, Pakistan occupied Kashmir, you feel that, that you know, the local resistance is becoming very strong. In Gilgit, Baltistan, which Pakistan, Pakistan is now making Gilgit Baltistan as its sixth, fifth province. 
local resistance has intensified and the local voices are becoming very strong advocating unification and reintegration with india so i mean you know and even in india among the political and the strategic circles you know there are the strong deliberations are going on like you know how to integrate pok pakistan occupied kashmir and gilgit baltistan with india this is one part then on the eastern side we have another devastating neighbor called china and which is so here i differentiate between china and the chinese communist party china is a civilization with a rich history of 3000 years or even more 4000 5000 years and in the last 4 to 5000 years of history india never faced any aggression from china in fact china is indebted to india for its culture for its religion india gave buddhism to china china's whole rich history of you know religion culture and you know uh, uh, other advancements in the field of uh, literature they have a very strong indian impact the whole tibet like you know you, you can see the strong impact of buddhism in tibet and china but the chinese communist party is a phenomenon which emerged just exactly 50 60 years back and unfortunately i mean i must say very blatantly and very i would say bluntly that chinese communist party represents the most primitive and a most i would say you know barbaric force on the face of the planet today and uh, they have no connection no linkages with china's rich history and uh, china's you know cosmopolitan culture they don't represent china in fact they have massacred people in tibet they have massacred muslims in uh, xinjiang region and you have you know uh, umpteen number of concentration camps are being run in china and now they are you know uh, uh, driven by that 18th century uh, colonial mindset they want to go completely expansionist in the neighboring areas and they recently tried to occupy some territory in the indian uh, indian uh, ladakh and but india gave a befitting reply to china because uh, china thought that with all its advancement in artificial intelligence you know and uh, uh, i mean rather rather the balloon of uh, this china's prowess which in fact internally is a very weak country uh, that they could actually easily cow down india but uh, today we represent a new india and uh, india refuses to surrender to all those forces which are anti democracy which are anti multiculturalism and which believe in the primitive ideas of fascism and nazism okay? so india gave a befitting reply and now china fears that you know if there is a escalation between india and china then in fact china will get huge reverses and if china gets defeat you know or even if major reverses that will be devastating for chinese communist party which is already facing the worst low phase in the history of its in its history of last 70 years because of its involvement in the spread of covid pandemic globally like it, the reputation levels have gone down and uh, you know, now it feels that internally to boost its legitimacy they want to just you know show that you know that we have you know subdued india and taken some part but uh, india is not willing to given and uh, and coming back to like you know what can happen in the next 6 to 12 months you know there is a possibility that you know if china indulges into any kind of misadventure over the next two or three months indian forces are in a very strong and a ready state to give a befitting reply and now luckily us and india are on the same page and i think the world you know i would say this the democracies of the world have realized that this is the time to suppress china or to contain china if we want to prevent the third world war otherwise you know if this menace goes on increasing it will be leading up a group of rogue states that will include north korea that will include turkey that will include pakistan you know and even some other countries like iran yeah. so 
in the next 6 to 12 months there is a possibility of some escalation in which india will come very stronger and uh, it will be a military victory for india also a diplomatic victory because this uh, abrogation of article 370 uh, completely unsettled pakistan unnerved them and uh, so they are uh, because in pakistan if they don't keep the issue of kashmir alive their army doesn't get the budgets and they have to keep their legitimacy intact in front of their own people so they'll be sending lot of foreign terrorists which have already started coming into kashmir and uh, uh, even 10 to 12 new terrorist organizations have come up and now we uh, see a unique phenomenon of turkey getting very strongly involved in kashmir and uh, the way turkey turkey, turkey, turkey the republic yes, of yes. turkey prime minister erdogan yes, yes. in kashmir yes 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 so the way they are sending their jihadis to syria now to azerbaijan and to different you know conflict theaters libya they are they i think i mean my internal sources say that they have already started sending their sadat commandos to train militants in kashmir and they may help the militant terrorist organizations in kashmir with new technology like the drones especially to attack the police as civilian and the military installations besides that they may also send their jihadis to kashmir because So so Turk, so I mean I'm I'm as for those of you who know uh when you heard my name Tanya Kushakchan you could tell that I'm yes. not Hindu or 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 Indian I'm I'm ethnically yes. Armenian uh American uh Christian uh and the descendant of genocide survivors so so I've been of when you say Turkey is in in Kashmir that's going to pique a lot of uh, of interest uh for for a lot of other people uh who who may not be familiar uh with what you're talking about because that is a very fascinating development because Turkey is you know is involved as you said in Libya in Syria yes. uh in Yemen and now they're they're spreading their 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 tentacles and 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 uh support of ISIS uh and as they are in Syria into Jammu and Kashmir yes yes and you if you go to now just just you know i'll just give you some examples to demonstrate their cultural influence people are naming their sons and daughters after ertugrul ghazi if you go on the roads you know right behind the trucks you know so people are mostly illiterate they don't they're not able to watch turkish operas and serials and all that they are you know getting those graffiti of ertugrul written behind their trucks you know and it's not just kashmir Uh, president erdogan is creating his influence among the entire muslim population of india and especially his line of thought is a very extremist very hateful ideology and a, you know and a way like you know a very clear cut support to call uh, support to terrorist organizations you know in the delhi riots recently the agency suspected very strong hand of uh, the involvement of turkey pfi another either uh, islamist organization which i just mentioned they have strong ties with turkey zakir nayak a fugitive and an absconder who is facing a case in terror sponsoring in india and extremist wahabi cleric is a very good friend of turkish clerics and uh, president erdogan so turkey is emerging as a potential threat in india to india's cultural and uh, communal harmony and in kashmir they may play even a even a worst game so yes uh, uh, coming to the ter- terrorist threat certainly there will be a spike in that besides that there will be more communal rights in india because uh, Uh, some of the you, you think there will be more communal riots similar to the scale yes. that we saw in Delhi earlier this year? Yes, yes, yes. I'll just come to the reasons because now you know, especially the Islamist groups in America, ICNA, MAS, and Jamaat-e-Islami proxies, uh, and uh, those who are on the payrolls of Turkey and other extremist organizations, they have become very actively involved in Indian affairs. 
with some of the Indian. And real quick, Abhinav, I just want for our listeners to know, um, we, HAF has done a couple of podcasts. Uh, if you're interested in getting some more background on um, uh, JEI uh, influence and other, uh, other terrorist organization influence in the United States, please check out HAF's uh, That's So Hindu podcasts uh, with, uh, with Samir Kalra, our managing director, uh, and the Middle East Forum, uh, Sam Westrop and Sam Smith, and then you can talk and and learn a little bit more about that. Um, HAF has brought some programming to us, uh, to our listeners this year on some of the things that you're talking about, Abhinav. And so I just want our listeners to know um, that if you're, if you're interested in some of those subsets that we're talking about today, you can go to uh, HAF's podcast, That's So Hindu, uh, and pull up some of our episodes that go a little bit more in depth on what you're talking. But please, Abhinav, continue. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, I mean, really, I must congratulate you for doing this kind of work because no one is doing this in India. You know, and unfortunately, our even our intelligence agencies, our strategic uh, community, our academia, they have a very poor understanding of, uh, especially how these Islamist organizations are uh, influencing the opinion and narrative in US. You know? So uh, they have because they they fear that uh, you know, uh, and even some of the political parties who feel that they will not be able to make it to the power because uh, their uh, appeasement politics stands exposed now. And now people look for good governance, good, uh, I would say, efficient uh, governance and economic development. So these political, and now there's also a very strong voice against Islamist extremism and jihadism in India. So some of these political parties feel that, you know, they have no chance to come back. And uh, the extremist jihadist organizations, they feel that if the current dispensation uh, stays on for long, they will pay a very strong, uh, you know, attention to India's security, boosting India's defenses and military technology, other areas. Okay? So some of these enemy forces don't want it. They will try to weaken the government and weaken the social uh, you know, fabric of India from within. So they will try to orchestrate rights between different castes, you know, making, I would say, blowing issues like, you know, some minor caste rivalries out of proportion. Okay? So... Uh, you can see some very strong caste frictions between low caste and high caste people here in India, orchestrated, you know, not genuine, okay? in which some of the intellectuals may play an, a critical role. Media can play a critical role. Okay? Besides that, you can come across various incidents of communal rights, which will give them an occasion to present India as a case of a genocide of Muslims and, you know, as a case of genocide of uh, ethnic minorities and genocide of people from the lower castes. Okay? So the, the, that's just uh, an attempt to put pressure on India. So these internal fault lines will be strengthened because of the activities of these, uh, I would say, such as uh, groups who are good at sabotage. Okay? Uh, so these are the challenges. Besides that, uh, I'm coming to the China front. Now China feels that, uh, you know, uh, I mean, uh, uh, all over the world, China is getting some kind of, uh, it was getting a legitimacy and acceptance all over the world. But uh, and uh, so China thought that you know they don't want a challenger in their backyard. But suddenly they woke to a very uncomfortable truth that India gave them a bitter challenge. And in the mountain terrain of Ladakh, India is in a very strong position. And India and like if there is a military escalation in the next coming next one year, two year, okay, uh, China can get a very tough time, okay, a tough bitter taste. So China will make their best efforts to weaken India. China will tie up with Pakistan. And with the other forces like Turkey, even with Iran, which whom now they have a very strong friendship to weaken India and to activate terrorist forces in India and organize sabotage activities in India. 
China will also try to influence the think tanks, the academia. I recently wrote a big article on that, you know, how they're penetrating into our uh, colleges, universities, think tanks, and, you know, our civil society. So uh, something like that. So th these are the things which you can expect in the, the next coming six to 12 months. You know? uh, fascinating, but, you know, fascinating. Again, and I'm sure I'd love to talk to you on another follow-up discussion podcast on some of the, some of the things you just talked about there, as far as yeah. uh, Chinese influence into, uh, uh, India, uh, society, academia, uh, and things of that nature. I'm sure, uh, you know, our listeners are, are aware of, of Pakistan's influence in Bollywood. Uh, and yeah. so, uh, you know, seeing the, the influence or hearing about the influence of, of China and in, in Indian society, I'm sure is going to be a cause for concern, uh, for, for, for many people in India. Like for example, recently when China was occupying Indian territories in Ladakh, you know, China was facing a global flak from uh, Australia and the entire world community. Some of the Indian think tanks were organizing webinars and podcasts on the topic how to learn urban governance practices from China. That's that, that that's just really surprising to hear, but uh, maybe not so surprising uh, to, to you, but it is uh, to those of us here in, in the United States. Um, so I want you to talk a little bit about uh, as we as we wrap up, tell, tell us a little bit more about uh, Yusunas Foundation um, and, and how you uh, how you how you founded this organization, what what you hope uh, what was its mission? Uh, where, where do you hope to see it uh, in the future? Uh, and tell us a little bit more about what uh, some of the work that you're doing, uh, both uh, with your with your new book, uh, as you mentioned, uh, but specifically with Yusinus Foundation. Sure. Uh, so, uh, you know, just have a brief backgrounder. I must say that you know, I mean, I uh, studied in the U.S. and remained in the U.S. for like uh, three, four years. You know, and at least the U.S. academic system. You know, I don't say that like it's perfect, but at least it's taught me uh, to adopt a rigorous, you know, and an objective. Uh, uh, analytical strategy while looking at things, you know, or an approach which is intellectually honest. Okay, I learned that. I don't, you know, so I came back to India and uh, I was uh, trying for different places. I worked with the UN for some time outside, you know, and here I found that you know, I mean, your academia, you know, no one was willing to take me. Like, you know, I mean, they just don't want me. <laughs> and uh, my thought, so I had my own thoughts, like you know, to just you know start something new for a very, very long time. And then when I thought that right, I'm a complete misfit, you know, uh, especially uh, in this, you know, mafia. Okay? So I should start something new. And uh, my Kashmir experience, research experience in Kashmir helped me a lot uh, to frame my thoughts about starting this USNS foundation. So I have started this organization as a think tank, which works in geopolitical and security affairs and intelligence affairs. So we have, uh, so far we have been organizing various webinars on the, important issues about which there's not much awareness or there are a lot of doubts or you know, a lot of smoke screens prevailing because people don't want to speak with frankness. So I try to bring speakers, you know, which come from diverse backgrounds and they can, you know, uh, tell the other side of the story, like what exactly, you know, I mean, so a diverse perspectives on the issue so that people can have a, a very unbiased and a very balanced or, a, you know, and an objective material to form their views about any subject. I want to involve more and more youngsters in this. And I'm also looking for various international collaborations. I'll be glad if uh, people from America, young scholars, young students, they write for us. And in the future, I'm looking for many more events uh, in India, in States, and even in Europe. Okay? And uh, I mean, expose the forces which are menacing towards humanity. My second book is on terror financing in Kashmir. 
terror financing in Kashmir is a very unique phenomenon. It's something which is totally different from the ISIS terror financing in the Western world or in the uh, in, in America or US. Okay, so here if you go to Kashmir. Uh, Financing the those specific acts of terror, I mean, that's that's a very trivial, uh, I would say, you know, effort. I would say. That doesn't require much money, you know, and that is just an offshoot of what's going in the background. So in terror financing, if you include what goes into creating the overall milieu, the overall ambiance, you know, of hatred, of, you know, bigotry, of extremism, that is the real terror financing in Kashmir. So well, that's that sounds really fascinating and something that could probably be the uh, an entire discussion in and of itself. Uh, well, I want to I want to thank you, Abhinav, uh, for your time, uh, for for your uh, intellectual curiosity uh, and feedback and for sharing uh, your thoughts and views and perspectives and your work uh, with with the Hindu American Foundation listeners. And I want you to know that. Uh, we have a very famous football player in the United States by the name of Tom Brady, and nobody wanted him in the beginning either. He was the 199th draft pick in the sixth round of the NFL draft, and he is now the most likely to be in the Hall of Fame as the best quarterback in NFL history. So, uh, Greatness is overlooked many times uh, in people's lives and throughout history, uh, and I know it won't let it won't get you down, and it won't get uh, uh, some of us down here in the United States as well. So, uh, so thank you, Abhinav Pandya, the CEO and founder of Yusanas Foundation in Rajasthan, India. Thank you so much uh, for for your commentary. Uh, we really enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks a lot, Daniel. It was really amazing, you know, and uh, I mean, I'm really, once again, my heartfelt thanks to you and your organization for giving me this wonderful opportunity and uh, with the divine blessings and with support of many people, Yusana's Foundation is getting a very good response, you know, uh, it's a new initiative and uh, hopefully I look forward to collaborating with you and, you know, work more and more with you. In fact, you know, we can have uh, many things in the future. Okay? We're looking very much forward to it, and I uh, can't wait to have you back on the HAF podcast, That's So Hindu. I'm your host, Tanya Kushakshin. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.